Amen. Amen. Praise God for his amazing grace to us. So we're in uh, January. Last year, January, we did a couple of series before. We did a couple of sermons before we got into our regular series for the year. Just reminding me, what are we doing here? Why did we come to San Diego? Why are we building this church? What is it that we're accomplishing here? And how does it fit into God's big plan? And hopefully to help us to be motivated for the coming year so um, we can be doing what God's called us to do. And so I'm going to do that. We're going to do that again for the next two weeks, really three weeks. Last week, Matt Day, intern Matt Day, preached uh, on growing together out of Acts 2 and how God is growing us together through the means of grace and what a beautiful thing that is and how we've been seeing that happen in our church and how, um, how, how grateful we should be that God is bringing people to faith, that we're baptizing people, that people are acknowledging Jesus and, and, and coming to the faith through our church and our ministry. And I'm going to continue that today. We're going to talk about the building of the tabernacle and what that has to do with us. And then next week, we're going to uh, talk about the the beginning of the church plant movement in 35 AD <laughs> in uh, Antioch in uh, Asia Minor and how, what that has to do with us. And then after that, in February, we'll start our, another main series in the book of First Samuel, which is going to be a lot, a lot, a lot of fun. So today, that's what we're going to be doing today. Um, so we're going to be talking about, we're going to be reading through uh, a fairly long reading. This is Exodus 35, 4 through 36, 7. So if you are able... Uh, would you please stand out of respect for the speaker, who is not me. I'm only the reader. We're standing out of respect for the speaker, who is God. This is the word of the Lord. And Moses said to all the congregation of the people, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. Gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple, scarlet yarns, fine twined linen, Goat's hair, tanned ram skins and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense and onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded, the tabernacle, its tent and its covering, its hooks and its frames, its bars, its pillars, its bases, the ark with its poles, the mercy seat, the veil of the screen, the table with its poles and all its utensils, the bread of the presence, the lampstand also for the light with its utensils and lamps and the oil for the light and the altar of incense with its poles, and the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense, and the screen for the door, and the door of the tabernacle, the altar of burnt offering with its grating of bronze, its poles, all its utensils, the basin and its stands, the hangings of the court, its pillars, its bases, the screen, and for the gate of the court, the pegs of the tabernacle, the pegs of the court and their cords, the finely worked garments for the ministering in the holy place, and the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, and they brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting, and for all of its service, and for the holy garments. And so they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and amulets and all sorts of, of gold objects. Every man dedicating an offering to the Lord, uh, to the Lord to the, of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarn 
or fine linen, or goat's hair, or tanned ram skins, or goat skins, they brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution, and everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. And every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair, and the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastpiece and spices and oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a freewill offering to the Lord. And then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord is called by name... Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, the tribe of Judah, and has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze and cutting stones for setting and carving wood for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Oholiab, the son of Ahisamach, the tribe of Dan, and he has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen or by a weaver or by any sort of workman or skilled designer. Bazalel and Oholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. And so Moses called Bezalel and Oholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come and do the work. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary and they still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came each from the task that he was doing. And they said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. And so Moses gave command and the word was proclaimed throughout the camp. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. And so the people were restrained from bringing for the material that they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is beautiful to us and to our ears, and we are excited to hear. It's wonderful and beautiful to hear of these wonderful times in, his, in the history of redemption where your people were just so in love with you that they offered everything in worship to you, Lord. And we wish that we could be like that. And so we pray that you would help us to see, Lord, uh, that we're doing the same thing. And I pray that you would fill our hearts and minds with your spirit and stir our hearts and help us to worship you, Lord, and to make you known to the nations. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We have cousins that live in, uh, in back in back east in, in Alabama, and they used to go to this church. It was David Platt's church, if you know who that is. Uh, um, Brookside? Brook Hills, church at Brook Hills. And they used to do this thing that we heard about from our cousins. They used to do this thing called sim, uh, Secret Church, where... 
they would take they would take all day Saturday and they would have a room. And they would and when people come in the morning, they'd close it off and they would take all day and just teach the whole book of Romans in a day. And they got the idea from the Chinese church where that's how it is. People are like so desperate to hear the word and to learn and it's so dangerous. You just can't come to church every Sunday morning or go to a Bible study. When people come, they are serious about it. And so they go, they come, they lock themselves in rooms and their teachers teach all day long and they learn about the book of Romans and then they sneak out and go home. And so David Platt took that idea and said, let's bring it to the United States and let's, let's do that because it's cool. And everybody was like, that'll never fly. People in America, they're so saturated with it, or they would, no one would want to come and sit all day long and listen and t- get taught the book of Romans. But as it turned out, that was exactly what people wanted to do, and they were, ended up soon enough turning people away and having to add more because so many people were into it. They were coming to do that that they, they would have run out of space, right? And so we, we heard that story, and we were like, man, that is the coolest thing we ever heard. We would love to do that here in our church. And we never, it just never materialized. We got busy. It never ended up happening. And then, fast forward, I ended up going to China on a mission last year in January. And we ended up going to this hotel room that our hosts in the underground church in Changsha put together. And people like snuck in in twos and threes and came in the door. We locked the door behind them. We taught all day for three days and then people would sneak out. We were followed by the secret police everywhere we went. And I was like, wow, that was cool. And I come home, and I'm telling Nisa the story about what we did. And she's like, she's like, do you realize what you just did? You did secret church, but you did it in China. And we were like, whoa. Never even hit me as I was doing it, what was going on. Have you ever done something like that? and not really even realize like, how amazing it was until after the fact, until later. Or you weren't really aware of how amazing it was at the time. It was only later that you men- remembered or understood how amazing it is. And that is really what I want you to see in this passage that we're going to talk about today. We look at this passage, the building of the tabernacle. It's just this great moment in redemptive history. Uh, the, the exodus, the parting of the Red Sea, these massive miracles that are happening and going on, God's people being saved. And we look back at this with big nostalgia like, and, we're, and we think to ourselves, man, how amazing would it have been to participate in, some, in a move of God like that? That's nothing like what we're doing. That was the big stuff and we weren't part of it. But how amazing would it have been if we were? They got to build this amazing, beautiful space of worship that played an important role in the history of salvation. Uh, But they weren't the first people in the Bible to build something beautiful for God. And they weren't the last. What they were doing, really, although they didn't fully understand it at the time, was making Christ known to the nations through what they were building and what they were doing. And that's something that New Testament saints that we get to do with even more clarity, with even more amazing power because of what we know and the revelation that we have now about Christ. And so here's the thing that I want to try to convince you of today is that we, in this little church, are basically doing the same thing that those people that built the tabernacle are doing. And so the big idea, the thesis the one sentence, a big idea that we're going to follow today 
is that we get to make something beautiful for God by rebuilding his house to the glory of Christ. We get to build, make something beautiful for God by rebuilding his house to the glory of Christ. Let's look at that. Let's break that down into three parts. The first part is we get to make something beautiful for God. If you read this passage, there's five like main defining themes that run through this passage. Let me run through them real quick. The first is that everybody worked together. Whether it was men and women are, are specifically mentioned, royalty and regular people are mentioned, rich and poor, white collar, blue collar, everybody is working together on this goal of putting together this tabernacle. Second thing, everyone was called to give of their wealth. And I'm sure maybe some of them were like, no, 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 no. I've got plans for that. I got plans for that money. I got plans for that gold, those earrings we were going to do. Uh, we were going to melt them down and make some stuff with it. But do you know where they got all that wealth? These are the Israelites in the desert with the tabernacle. Do you know where they got all the wealth that they used to build the tabernacle? On their way out of Egypt, out of slavery, God softened the hearts of the Egyptians and, and the Egyptian people loaded them up just started giving them all their stuff. It's like if God called us all to leave San Diego and we went to our neighbors and they just emptied their bank accounts and gave us piles of cash and pillowcases and gold and jewelry and all their Rolex watches and car deeds and titles and said, hey, take this, you're going to need it. Literally had the Egyptian people give them all their wealth. And the third thing, third thing, everyone was called to serve with their various talents and abilities. Now, here's an interesting question. Where did they get, we know we just found out where they got all the gold and all the stuff, but where did they get their talents and abilities? I think we think, as Americans, that we're talented, we have giftings that we are born with, but the Bible says, in 36, chapter 36, verse 1, it says, every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work. That's where they got that that's where we get our talent. We know we get spiritual gifts when we become saved, when we become Christians. But did you know that we also have natural talents and ability that God gives us from birth that we have? And then God gives us spiritual gifts to complement those things and we're then to use that to glorify God, not ourselves. And so, you know, just quick stop right there. What it's saying, what this means is that everything we have is from God. All of our wealth is from God. All of our talents and gifts and abilities are from God. And he asks all of us, all of his people, to give a little bit back to him as a sign of trust to him. And then through that, he builds trust and faith in us, which is then a blessing to us. Fourth thing, what they built was of astonishing beauty. You should hear the, the words that they use to talk about all the craftsmen. Uh, all the, these two craftsmen, Bezalel and Oholiab, were lead craftsmen, but they were also examples of the whole because God says that God filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs. They strove to worship God by creating beauty which, hint, that means it's okay for us to worship God by creating beautiful things in the worship of his name. 
and five, they did it not like the forced labor of the Egyptians that they had just left, but they all did it from a deep sense of joy and gratitude. Did you catch that last paragraph? At the end of it, the last paragraph says, Moses had to tell everybody to stop giving <laughs> because they, they, they piled so much stuff up for the construction of the tabernacle. They had so much extra stuff. Moses had to go to the people and say, please stop bringing your stuff. Can you imagine if you all got an email from Rachel from the office saying, please stop giving to the church. <laughs> we, have over, we have overwhelmed with gifts and tithes and offerings and we have overrun, uh, we've well over our budget for 2018 and we want you to divert your gifts and offerings to some other... Can you imagine getting it? No. <laughs> we probably wouldn't do it because we'd be afraid of 2019. Be like we must we better hold this stuff up because they gave from the depths of their hearts because they wanted to. Why? What is going on with the Israelites here? The Israelites are not super famous for their consistent devotion to God. Uh, why are they acting like this? And I was reading, so I'm reading through this and it hit me. I was like, where, first of all, where are they? They're in the middle of the desert, right? They are not trying to keep up with the Canaanites. They're not trying to outdo the Amorites in building better temples to the Baals or to the false gods that people worship. They're not competing with anybody. They just are overwhelmed with their hearts and they want this is just a pure act of worship. They want to glorify God and make him known and celebrate him by creating beauty and creating beauty to his name. And why? Why did they do this? Why were they so grateful? What just happened? The Exodus. They were just liberated from slavery, liberated from bondage in Egypt. We don't have we don't really have a reference point for that. You know, maybe you had a really bad job that you were in for a while with an awful boss and you were liberated from that. You get a little tiny taste of it. Maybe you had suffered from a serious addiction and God saved you out of that and you felt and you feel the liberation of that and the gratitude that flows out of it. For, for most of us, we don't really even have a mental foothold in what it meant for them to be liberated from the life that they had lived under the Egyptians' unimaginable oppression and slavery and injustice. And so they were just so grateful. They were so grateful. They were just saying, we are so in love with God that we want to center all of our lives, our wealth, our talents in the, in the act of worshiping Him and rejoicing in His goodness. It was one of those you know, amazing times in biblical history where God's people were overwhelmed with gratitude and worshiping Him. They would soon lose it, as they so often did, and it would come back. They would soon uh, be tempted to believe other gospels that was trying to sell them on the idea of going back to Egypt. But for this moment in time, all they wanted to do was express the beauty of God as a pure act of worship because they loved him.
And it was beautiful. And I read this, reading through this, and I was like, man, I wish we could do something like that. Wouldn't it be great? (laughs) Wouldn't it be great if we could do something as cool as that? Which brings us to the second point. We get to make something beautiful for God by rebuilding his house. Now, here's the, here's, the, here's the point I want to make about this whole thing, right? We, this is a new chapter in redemptive history. It's kind of a new thing. There's, they're building something different than they had before. But this is not uh, the first time. Uh, this is not, we think of this as a brand new thing, but it really isn't. This isn't the first time that God's people built or cared for a sanctuary or made a place of worship or expressed beauty towards God. And it certainly wasn't the last. The kingdom of God we see in the Bible is constantly the visible kingdom of God in the church and in God's people in our state of worship on the earth is in a constant state of flux. Really, we see the church is growing, moving, shrinking, expanding across the globe according to God's perfect plan. In the Old Testament, first, Garden of Eden, God creates a perfect temple, a sanctuary in the Garden of Eden. We lose it. Right after the fall, there's a thing called, the theologians call the Sethite altar communities, which means basically Seth, one of the sons of Adam and Eve, they began to worship God and create altars post or after the fall of mankind. And the descendants of Cain slowly destroyed them until only Noah was left. Uh, and then the ark itself is pictured as a sanctuary place of God. And then the altar that Noah builds after the flood in the post-flood world eventually fades out and the worship of God becomes forgotten again. And then until we see Melchizedek, the pre- high priest of Salem, who is one of the last remnants of the old worship of the true God, coming out and blessing Abraham as the high priest. And then there's Abraham and the patriarchs building altars to God in the land of Canaan where God had sent them and then they get sent to Egypt and enslaved. And the Pharaoh forgets about them. And then Moses and the Exodus and they build a tabernacle and then eventually Probably the majority of that tabernacle is destroyed by the Philistines at Shiloh and they rebuild parts of it. But then David comes and David builds his own tent in Jerusalem and introduces this whole new form of worship that looks remarkably like New Testament worship on Mount Zion prior to the building of the temple. And then the temple is built and then it's destroyed by the Babylonians. And God's people go into exile. And then they come back and they rebuild the temple again. And then it's destroyed again by the Romans. And now we're in the New Testament, right? And it should be all good from there, right? That's the story we get. The gospel's in Jerusalem to Samaria, to the outer parts of the world, and this unbroken stream of just external movement, right? But the church moved out into Asia Minor and then was lost. And the church moved out into the Middle East where the capital of the church was in Baghdad in the early centuries of the church and then that was lost and shrunk. And then in the fourth, third and fourth centuries, the power base of the church was in Africa and then that was lost. And now it's being regained. And the church moved all the way into China in the first centuries and then that was lost. And now it's being regained. The church in Japan reached 300,000 members and then crazy persecution killed everyone 
and it shrunk, and now it's starting to be regained. All over the world, and then the church goes and spreads out through Europe, and then it contracts, and now it's being lost, and now it's being regained, even ironically through Muslim immigrants through the Syrian refugee crisis. And now in the United States, people will say the lights are going out on the church. It's shrinking. Maybe it's shrunk. Maybe it's dead. Maybe it's deathly ill. Maybe it no longer even really represents what Christianity is in large parts. But maybe, just maybe, there's little points of light that are growing and becoming something beautiful for God by his people faithfully building. So what about us? What about us? What are we doing here? I say we're doing the same thing those tabernacle builders were doing. I think we're doing the same thing. You know, one one big reason why we think otherwise is the whole American church is infected with rapturitis. You know what that means? We've been so conditioned in the last 40, 50, 60 years to believe that any minute we're going to be raptured and taken out of here that we're all just dug in and hunkered down and ready to go. Right? And there's two things we know. Two things we know for sure. Number one, at some point in time, the Lord will return and those Christians who are alive at that time will be translated in the blink of an eye, raptured to be with the Lord and enter into the eternal state. That's true. The other thing we know for sure is that everybody who has set that date has been wrong. (laughs) Everybody who has said our generation, Nisa says this all the time, everybody who says our generation, this is it. Every one of them, the one thing they have in common with each other, they've all been wrong. So maybe, maybe, please, Lord, Nick, this week we'll be raptured, we'll be with the Lord forever. Hallelujah. But maybe not. Maybe we're rebuilding the house. Maybe we're rebuilding the American church. Maybe it's not a revival. Maybe it's another reformation where the church is getting its sight back on Jesus and the forgiveness of sins and that our reward, what we're hoping for, is not a better life but an eternal life. Maybe that's what we're doing here. Maybe we're in the middle of a spiritual desert just like the Israelites surrounded by people who have never been to church or they've been to church their whole lives and never heard the gospel. And we are a point of light that's growing and expanding and rebuilding in another movement of God with fresh growth, bringing people into the spirit and into life. Maybe we get to make something beautiful for God by rebuilding his house right here. And why should we do this? Why should we be joyful in this? Why should our hearts be singing in our privilege to get to do this in the same way the Israelites were? Let me give you three reasons. Number one, the tabernacle was not the first expenditure of gold and silver or gold that the Israelites made. You know what they did first? What they built first? They built the golden calf. That was the first thing they built. You know what happened to that? I was thinking, where do they get all this gold? How much gold must they have had to make all these things? And then I thought, man, oh, the golden calf, that was a big thing. That was a lot of gold. And when Moses came down, he took that calf, crushed it to fine powder, and cast it to the winds. That gold 
was gone forever. Anything and everything that we invest in our false idols and our false gods, all the golden calf gold that we invest in that is always, will be lost forever. And so we'd be much smarter to invest our wealth, invest our time in eternal things and in the movement of God in the world. Second thing why we should do it, second thing why it's an astonishing privilege is that we are part of an even greater exodus than they were. Now look, being, a, being oppressed in physical slavery is atrocious. It's an abomination. It's awful. But before we knew Christ, sin was working us like slaves. That's what sin does. It works you and oppresses you and pushes you and makes false promises that you bank on that never come through and leaves you in absolute despair. And not only that, but what Christ did, Christ's death and resurrection is described in the New Testament as a new exodus. That Everything in the Old Testament that talked about liberation, the, the slavery and sin working us, or the Egyptians working the Israelite people, and then God saving them out of that, redeeming them, out of slavery, those pictures are all physical models of the spiritual reality of the New Testament. We have been liberated from, from the oppression of sin. And not only that, the power of it has been broken in our lives. It no longer rules in us. And no, not just that, but we are no longer slaves to it so that its full fruit will come to bear in our lives. Listen to this, Listen to this quote. This is a quote from a book called the Enemy Within by Chris Lungard that we use for our men's group, a book I try to read uh, uh, every so often. It's a, a great book that talks about the real power of indwelling sin. And he says this, he says, in what sense has Christ defeated sin in the believer through his death and resurrection, through his payment of our sins on the cross? It says he has weakened its power and even killed its root so that it cannot bear the fruit of eternal death. Outside of that, outside of this new exodus that we have, that was all we had to look forward to, was being punished and driven by sin and false promises and despair until it bore its ultimate fruit, of eternal death, and you have been freed from that. That will not happen to you, Christian. That will not happen to you. At the end of the day, you do not get eternal death. You get eternal life. And if the Israelites were able to be grateful in their hearts, overwhelmed with gratitude and love for being redeemed from physical slavery, how much more should we be overwhelmed with joy and a constant state of worship and praise for the fact that eternal death has been broken and we are free of it. And the third reason is point three. The third reason is that we get to make something beautiful for God by rebuilding his house for the glory of Christ. We get to do it for the glory of Christ. Everything that they built, everything that they described 
in, that, in this passage that the Israelites built or they made, all of it they made as this act of devotion to God was actually in God's amazing providence and power and foreknowledge. It was God making known to them and also to the nations and to the world the glory of Christ and their own salvation. In other words, he was like folding it back in on them in this massive blessing that blessed them and their children and, and the Bible says all the families of the world. And so everything they made, all the things that they gave, all of those skilled craftsmen, the, the, the artists, the musicians, the weavers, the goldsmiths, the garment workers, the carpenters, the perfumers, everybody from the highest skill level, professional trades to manual laborers, all of them were giving and donating to make these things that represented Jesus. The tabernacle itself was a microcosm of the heavenly places in the world with its two sections, the holy place and the extra holy place where only God could dwell. And do you know what happened when Jesus died on the cross to the veil that separated those two? Torn in half from the top down. Who tore it? That's right. God tore that veil in half, opening up the way to heaven for everyone who comes in through Jesus. The altar, the utensils, the animal sacrifices, all of it pointed forward to the sacrifice of Jesus. The ark of the covenant was built so that God was said to dwell or would be enthroned above the cherubim, the angels on the top of the lid, and he would look down at the tablets of the broken law that were carried inside the tabernacle through the sprinkled blood that the priest would put on it, representing Christ's sacrifice, and he would extend mercy and grace because of that sprinkled blood. The bread of the presence was Jesus is the bread of life, the lampstand, Jesus, the light of the world, the oil of incense, the anointing of the indwelling Holy Spirit of God, the finely worked garments of the priests, picturing us being clothed in the righteousness of Christ, given his righteousness as a gift so that we can stand in the presence of God and not be incinerated by God, our consuming fire. We are standing in front of him in perfect security because he loves us. And he sees us as, we are, as if we are dressed in the finely worked garments of our high priest. <laughs> Can you imagine that? That's true. He doesn't see our filthy rags. When he looks at us, we are, un, we are dressed in the finest robes that our minds can comprehend. Everyone working together, all the wealth and skill they were given, giving it back to God as an act of worship, and then God folding it back around again to bless them and bless the world. And so what about us then? What about us? All of those things, they were shadows, right? They were pictures. All those craftsmen were building things that were, just, that were representative of, of Jesus that they didn't even have full knowledge of, but now we in the New Testament, all of that has been revealed and we understand what all those things mean. And we now have other things, the word, we have baptism, we have the Lord's Supper that shows forth to the world the bread of life, that Jesus is the salvation of the world. We get to make known the reality of Jesus to the world through the wealth and talents that God has given us in a much fuller way.
So are you rich? Praise God. You can contribute to the, to the work of God in a big way. Are you poor? Praise God. You can give to the work of the church in a little way. Maybe you have talents that were given you to God. Maybe you know how to move stuff around and set up. Maybe you know sound tech. Maybe you know how to work the slides. Maybe you know or good or hospitality. Maybe you know how to make coffee. Maybe you like to pray for people. Maybe you can do security and keep us safe. Maybe you know how to do graphic arts and you're an artist. Maybe you know how to build a website or social media. Maybe you're doing these things for the church right now. Maybe you're good at photography or videography. Maybe you work with children well. Maybe you are great with outreach and you have the gift of evangelism and you love to go out and talk to people about Jesus or you like to set things up so that people can talk to people about Jesus. Or you want to show the mercy of Christ to the world and work with the homeless or work with foster kids or work with mentoring or do something like that. If that's true, praise God. You are rebuilding the house of God in the same way that those Israelites were doing in their time and in their place. You are making, we are making Christ known to the nation through all these little skills and talents that God has given us. Isn't that amazing? That's what we're doing here. We're not coming here to hear a lecture, sing some songs. We're coming here to build the house of God, and to advance his visible kingdom on the earth. Us. A bunch of misfits. It's crazy. <laughs> Look, we're two years old. We're in something that production uh, management experts call the messy middle. <laughs> we're past the point where the goal is new and fresh and super exciting. <laughs> but we're not to the point yet where we've seen all the fruit of it, although we're seeing crazy fruit that's happening right now all over the place. So I have a feeling that we're about to clear the messy middle, but we're in that middle part where it's super easy to start getting burned out and long for Egypt again. Long for the comforts of Egypt with leeks and meat and whatever. (laughs) Whatever they were, you know, whatever they were longing for from Egypt. We're still marching through the wilderness, but let's remember what we're doing. We won't be here forever. Pretty soon this church will be full of people, over full of people, and we'll all be in it together, contributing the wealth that God has given us and the talents that he's given us to make his name known because we love him and we're so grateful for what he's done for us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do love you. Lord, each and every one of us, when we get super honest, we know that you have saved us from misery and death. You've self saved us from our own self-will destruction. Whether that was super visible on the outside from dangerous living or it was internal despair or whatever it was, Lord, we know that you have rescued us from sin and from death and from hell, and we love you. And we pray that you would help us in this messy middle, in this coming year, to not forget about our exodus, to not forget about who you are and how beautiful you are, and that what we are doing here is a remarkable privilege. 
It is a remarkable privilege to make you known to the nations. In whatever big way or whatever small way that you entrust to us, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be grateful and that you would help us uh, help us to consecrate ourselves to you and your glory. And we know, Lord, that you will somehow take that and fold it back around to bless us in ways that we cannot even imagine, Lord. And so let your kingdom come throughout the earth, through us, in our hearts, and let your name be glorified among the nations through Res Pres in Jesus' name. Amen.